Acts chapter 13 means that we are pressing on with the same theme, the advance of the kingdom. But in Acts 13, we're moving to a new era in the church's mission. First, in the early chapters of Acts, we saw how the gospel saturated Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit in fulfillment of the prophet Joel. Then, the gospel overflowed to the surrounding regions of Judea, Samaria. This happened in the natural scattering of the Christians in response to persecution there in Jerusalem. Now, beginning in chapter 13 and going through the rest of the book, Luke is documenting the intentional, spirit-empowered sending of messengers to what Jesus called the ends of the earth. This was always the plan. Recorded in Matthew 28 are Jesus' parting words with the disciples, and there he tells them, going, make disciples. Now, in the English, it reads a little differently. Go, therefore, and make disciples. But the going is kind of a descriptive of the making disciples process. You make disciples by the going, by the sending, by that far-reaching spread of the gospel. And in Acts 1, Jesus had documented this kind of regional expansion, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now the ends of the earth. In our church language, we call the ends of the earth missions. And we speak of missionaries, and we are right to do so. Our text here, Acts chapter 13, in verse 3, says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That word for sent, as the Bible was translated through its languages, in the kind of Latin years, the Latin word for sent is missio. And so missionaries and mission comes from this very idea of sending. It wasn't just the, the natural spread of the gospel, Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. It wasn't just the Christians that moved on because life in Jerusalem was like living in hot water. It was, it was tough with the persecution. So they, they went elsewhere and kind of started over. They relocated. Some of you have relocated across the country maybe multiple times. This is a different kind of relocation. This relocation is, is very purposeful and intentional. It is the going of, to some other place at the, the sending of the Holy Spirit and the church, we'll see, for the purpose of spreading good news. And so missions is simply the sending out of gospel messengers. The sending out of people who are going to share the good news on purpose. It's why they're going. Now we'll see even in Acts, some of those sent ones would kind of earn their living along the way. Land in a city, set up shop and make some tents, for example. But even Paul, as he would do his tent making to supply his need he writes that some of those sent and some of those who are called to declare the word make their living by the gifts of the church. 
And so it is that we support missionaries around the globe. Collectively as a church through our budget, and then some of you give to missionaries that you know. This is good and right. This is the plan that unfolds in Acts 13. But it's kind of a new concept. So I want us to look at this text to see how missions kind of happened in the first century church so that we can learn what sustains healthy missions ministry today. To do that, notice first that kingdom advancing missions relies on the equipping in the local church. Our text begins, now there were in the church. And it lists these prophets and teachers. Now there were in the church these men. So we have our context, the local church. The gathering of believers in worship and in relationship. So remember, the church is not just, I went there and worshiped Sunday morning, but it's, I'm doing life with these people. They're helping me and I'm helping them to get it right this week for God's glory. So the church gives us this context for even a fledgling understanding of missions. It was in the context of the local church that disciples were equipped for missions. And I want to to highlight several elements of the equipping here as we think of the equipping in the local church that spawned this sending of some to take the gospel. First, notice the gifts. There's not an exhaustive list here. We're only told that there were prophets and teachers. But I think we're right to assume in the building of the body that there were other gifts there as well that are listed in Romans or 1 Corinthians. Those gifts were being developed and exercised for the common good, as 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says. Everyone who is a part of the church has been baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they've been identified as God's people by the Holy Spirit and equipped with gifts to serve the body for its good. It's interesting that we are told something of these prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaen. And then, of course, Barnabas and Saul. Well, two of these are Jews. If you include Saul, one of them's a Jew of Jews. He's a Pharisee. Three of them are Gentiles. One of them, even a political elite, we might say, born and raised kind of in the household of Herod. This this word that's used to link him to Herod there in verse One, a lifelong friend, is a little more technical. It's more, he was one of the young boys that grew up in the school with Herod, kind of in the courts. So he was a somebody. He kind of had a name he could drop at any time. And yet, by God's grace, he's become a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't know what kind of target was on his back. We only know now his life was defined by one thing. He was a prophet or a teacher speaking the truth of the living God. These gifts 
are on display in the church. And I think they're highlighted here, the prophet and teacher, as those gifts that contribute to the definition of missions, those who are proclaiming the good news. So we see the gifts there. And we're reminded that we are being equipped every time the word is opened to exercise our gifts for the good of the body. Your mission may not be to be one of the sent ones, but what does it mean to be an unsent one? It would mean your gifts are on display in their fullness here in this local body. When we think of equipping, we must not miss the ministry of the word. The gifts are there. These are prophets and teachers. And we know there are other gifts as well. However, these two gifts kind of lead to the second understanding of equipping. It's based on the word. Both of these gifts deal with God's truth being given to the church. The prophet and the teacher. Both of these gifts are taking God's revelation and making it known to the church. A few months back in the equip hour, we even studied the the nature of miraculous gifts, which was a discussion that that sprung out of the early chapters of Acts when when the lame man is healed at the temple gate and and he's walking and leaping and praising the Lord. And we took a little bit of a dive into why the miraculous gifts are on display here in the book of Acts. What is this ministry of the prophet? Why don't we see that today? So we we wrestled with some of those things. And here we see again, prophets and teachers are communicating God's truth to the church. Remember, they don't have a Bible in their hands. They don't have all those books of the Bible that we have. They had the Old Testament law and the prophets, but the rest of that scripture is some being written and much of it to yet be written. How would they know what was true and what was a word from God? Well, it came through God's messengers to the church. What's interesting is that the word is foundational to the life of the church pre-missions before anyone is sent out, and then it becomes the essence of those who are sent out. We'll see that later. They went from one tip of the island to the other, proclaiming God's word everywhere. If nothing else, see in this equipping emphasis on the word that you should be readying yourself for future adventure, for future mission, for future usefulness by giving your attention to God's word today. God doesn't need your gift if it's not exercised in conjunction with the word. For what is the purpose of your gift then? Where are you going to steer people? To what end would that gift be exercised? The word informs those gifts. The word empowers those gifts. So recognize the value of your time in the word this week. It is sharpening you. It is readying you for ministry. Of your gift. We see the gifts. We see the word, the word of God. Third, we see worship. We're told in verse 2 while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas 
and Saul for the work to which I have called them. These people already had a mindset. Before there was any thought of going somewhere, leaving something behind, making a sacrifice, they had already established God is worth anything. So when the Spirit comes and says, you need to leave here and go there, there's no decision to make. It's a no-brainer. Of course God is worth that. We maybe need to get a better grasp of what it means to gather to worship. Because if you're here saying God is worth everything I could offer, then let's not be surprised when he says, I need you to do this. Worship means we've established that God is in control and he is worth everything I could give. I'm a living sacrifice for whatever he wants. In addition to worship, we see zeal. In this local church that was equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, they recognized the gifts, the importance of the word, the essence of worship. And this kind of rare description of the church, zealous. There was zeal. It's not a word we use much anymore. But I think when we look at this emphasis on their fasting, we recognize the church was passionate about knowing what God wanted them to do. Fasting, we think of it as this intentional season of seeking or waiting or focusing. We want to know what God wants. We want to give our attention to his concern, his desire, his will. It's an added kind of measure that, that probably legitimately can't be sustained in the Christian life. But in seasons, it just seems like there, there needs to be this passionate pursuit of what God wants us to do. Maybe we're helped by hearing what James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's actually kind of a hard text to wrestle with. When we think, well, isn't God always near? Isn't God everywhere? Does God really leave us? He said he never would. So then we have to focus in on not like proximity, but what does that nearness mean in, in intimacy, in surrender? And when I draw near in surrender, what does it look like for God to draw near? He's not surrendering to me. But maybe in my intimacy of laying all before the Lord, I draw near to him, he draws near to me and lays out what he wants for me. And suddenly knowing the will of God isn't such a mystery. Too often it seems we want to be fruitful, we want to, we want to have ministry, we want to get involved with something, but we don't want the, the zealous fervency that leads to fruitfulness. When we read in the Gospels of Jesus' fruitful public ministry, it's easy to overlook that he rose up early because of fervency. And he prayed. And he met with his Father. He drew near. If Jesus, the Son of God, draws near to the Father, then I don't think we can escape the necessity of drawing near to him ourselves. 
What part of your spiritual life would you describe with the word zeal? Fanaticism. Our hesitancy may be an indictment that simply leads us to a fuller surrender, a a greater view of what the local church should be, a group of people who are characterized in some way by zeal, by this old word that speaks to passion, that is maybe best manifest in our culture as those crazy painted super fans at a Chiefs game. They are fanatics. There's a zeal there that goes beyond everyone else. Something of that should mark our Christian lives. And when the local church is equipped that way, when we're being urged that direction, then it's no surprise that the Holy Spirit says, I've got something else for you to do. If we're faithful in that which is least, don't be surprised when the mission gets expanded. The local church is the first major theme of missions. Missions can only be built on a healthy, thriving local church. But our text then uses a couple of verses in this story to point to our second theme. Kingdom advancing missions relies on the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now this very property was once a property that focused I would say, excessively on the Holy Spirit. I've encountered people that, speaking of the old auditorium, which is now the lobby, said they remember, you know, the water flowing off the platform and flooding the auditorium, but they weren't talking about literal water. Somehow it was the spirits working there. Um, All kinds of stories about kind of bizarre things that we don't really see the Spirit saying he would do, which is why I tend to think it was a little bit excessive in their understanding of how the Spirit works today. But anytime we critique an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit, we had best be careful that we don't overcorrect with that steering wheel into the ditch of the doldrums where we never count on the Spirit to do anything because we have a program for it. And after all, we're sending missionaries. They can give the gospel. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, just see in our text that that is groundbreaking for understanding this, this idea of a church sending a representative to tell the good news. What we see is the local church is essential, and so is the leading of the Holy Spirit. We see it first there in verse Two, that the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul. So the Spirit is clearly at work. He's imposing his will on the local church. We could rightly ask, how did the Holy Spirit say that to the church there in Antioch? You know, in Acts 1, God spoke by the Spirit, but it was through the casting of lots. But that's right on the eve of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's poured out. And here we have another decision being made and they're not casting lots to see which of these teachers should go. Instead, it's the Holy Spirit speaking. We could naturally assume that he spoke through one of the prophets, perhaps. We don't really know. We just know the Holy Spirit was an integral part of this fledgling missions effort. 
The bigger question would be, how would the Holy Spirit say this to us today? How would the Holy Spirit tell Grace Bible Church, set apart, and then we could plug any of your names in there, set them apart and send them out for this mission work? How would he tell us that today? I think it would be in part through a study of the Word. Remember, the Word's central to the equipping. The more people are in the Word, the more they're realizing this kingdom mission. And it may be that through that study of the Word, somebody would say, I think God wants me to go and take this message everywhere. Or maybe because you're doing it here, we come to you and say, have you ever thought that God might want you to do this in a broader context? So it's through the word that we might have this idea that somebody should be sent out. Adding to that would be intentional searching, fasting and prayer. That's still for us today. And we would also add this with this emphasis of the local church, the church's observation of the Holy Spirit's gifting. So it might not look all that different today. We're not exactly sure what the Spirit did to announce his calling on Saul and Barnabas. But we can gather even from this paragraph that today the Spirit may indeed do this same thing. Put in the heart of somebody that they could be a a teller and more of a teller than they are now because that could become their vocation even. The Holy Spirit said, set apart. Then we read in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they're set apart by the Holy Spirit. Now they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. But verse 3 told us it was the church that sent them off. So which is it? Did the church send them off, or did the Holy Spirit send them out? And I think you can probably get the right answer there. It was both. Remember, our first point is the emphasis of the, Holy, the, of the church. The second point is the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And together, this is foundational for missions. So we shouldn't be surprised when practically it looks like the church is sending them out. But really, we know that was the work of the Holy Spirit through the local church in sending them out. This is where the, the clearest missionaries are those who have a strong understanding of the local church. They may have a mission board to get some work done, to do some organization, some some practical details can be taken care of, but a missionary is not sent by a board. A mission board is unnecessary in the scheme of biblical missions. What is necessary and essential is the local church. And again, we are grateful for partnerships with mission boards who say, exactly what I'm saying. They know their place. They are just a servant to facilitate getting the local church's people to the field. And so we rejoice in those partnerships, but see here clearly it's the local church and the Holy Spirit that shape a biblical understanding of missions. They were set apart by the Spirit, and then they're sent out by the Spirit. But this raises another question. They're sent out to do this word ministry, but 
weren't they already doing gospel spreading work in the power of the Holy Spirit? We've been reading about that for 12 chapters now. Wherever these men have gone, they were spreading the good news. It was often labeled as preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. So yes, yes, they have been doing this. But this is what is so noteworthy in the text. This seems to be a new means or method of gospel spreading where you actually take someone and say, you are going to be sent by us to go and do the spreading work. It's exactly what we think of as modern missions. And it didn't just happen. It was the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And so they laid hands on them it says, and sent them off, but that was also the work of the Holy Spirit, taking them in the direction that he wanted them to go. We should note this laying on of hands is nothing superstitious. This is just a recognition of the church that the Holy Spirit was at work in this. He was sending them off. And by laying their hands on them, they are communicating this togetherness in this project. We are with you. We will support you. And so it is with the money that will be dropped in the box in the back. Some of that's going to go to fund the living and ministry expenses of the farmer family or of the Webbers and their Bible translation effort, the Schraders up there in Alaska as they transition from camp ministry in summer to the off-season work in the cities there in Alaska. Your money is supporting them so that they pay their bills and buy their food. But that's what's going on. It started here in Acts 13. Take some that are there with you, living their lives as they are, and send them out to do this specific work of spreading good news. The Holy Spirit set apart. The Holy Spirit sent out. And then we read in verses 9 and 10 of Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. It was this filling of the Spirit that produced what? A stare, a stare down, we might say. And then Saul says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all, unrighteous, of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Well, be careful with this text in your evangelism this week, all right? We can get pretty riled up watching the news and seeing how worldly worldliness really is. But we need to remember that the ones we're going to be communicating with are individual souls, sheep that, like we at one point, had wandered astray. So there needs to be this compassion as Jesus had when he looked at the multitude and saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Were they unrighteous sinners? Were they sons of the devil, enemies of all that is right? Yes. But all those things are true, and yet so is compassion and sharing this good news that all of that finds its remedy in Jesus Christ. Stern rebuke and harsh language that flows in the text, is closely linked to the Spirit's filling. By that, I'm not saying that if you're filled with the Spirit, you will always be giving stern rebukes. 
and speaking harshly. I'm saying, if you are going to speak harshly and give stern rebuke, you had best be filled with the Spirit. That's your only hope that you're doing it rightly. Paul, filled with the Spirit, has a moment of this righteous indignation spilling out against this one who is literally hurling himself between the gospel and the one who's trying to hear it. He's intentionally trying to hinder the gospel's spread. And in that moment, Holy Spirit led Saul to rebuke sharply this one. It was under control. It was biblically grounded. These are marks of the Spirit. The local church is the first major theme of missions. The power of the Spirit is the second building block for a missions philosophy or theology. Finally, see that kingdom advancing missions relies on the working of the sent ones. The working of the sent ones. And this is why we pray for our missionaries generally each Sunday. It's why I would ask you to to pray for them if you haven't been. Find one of the days of the week or something where you can pray for them. Do it at your dinner table, perhaps, with your family, recognizing that some other family, a lot like yours, is somewhere far away in a different culture, going about life much like you would, but also with this added privilege and duty of being a full-time sharer of good news. Missions relies on the working of the sent ones. And so we see, having been sent out by the Holy Spirit, verse 5, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. And you can look in the back of your Bible and see the map. I call this island the Flying Squirrel Island. It looks like a flying squirrel spread out in a square with a tail sticking out the back. And they landed at the tip, and they went all the way across the island, proclaiming good news everywhere. It'd be like you saying, I'm going to take care of my portion of the neighborhood. I'm going to, in this next year, make sure I build bridges to to the houses on either side of me, across the street, and the neighbor behind me. I've got a plan. Everywhere that is my neighborhood, I'm going to tell the good news. It'd be like having a plan to meet with everybody in your office for lunch in the course of the next year to give the gospel to every one of them on purpose. That's the kind of intentionality we're talking about when we say kingdom advancing missions relies on the working of the sent ones. They're on purpose sharing good news. And this is what I want us to understand about their working. Our working should be characterized by clear purpose. It's interesting in verse 2, the Holy Spirit says, separate them for the work to which I have called them. We're going to read through chapter 13 and chapter 14. And by the end of chapter 14, it says they got back to the church after completing, it says, their work. They were sent out for a purpose and they came back and said, we did it. 
We fulfilled the work. So they're sent off. Verse 4, they sent and sailed. Verse 5, there's all this truth-telling and gospel announcing. Verse 6, from one side of the island to the other. Burned right through it. In the old revivalist days of the Second Great Awakening, which wasn't always done well, they called the region up there through New England to New York the burned-over district because revival had gone through there and sometimes not always the best kind of revival, again and again, and it was just like it had been scorched. Nothing was left. Here is a good sense of that. From one tip to the other, not a place had missed the announcement of the good news. Clear purpose. I think a lot of times our mission's thoughts or our witness thoughts are, well, if it happens... If I meet someone, if it comes up in the conversation, and I'm not saying don't pray that way. Lord, if it comes up in the conversation, make me a bold witness. I think we just need to add to that. Lord, maybe I need a purpose. Maybe I need from this place to that place, and everything in between is covered because this is where my light shines. Secondly, see that our working should be characterized by spiritual warfare. Here's where we see this rebuke again of Saul toward Elymas, this sorcerer. Yes, it looks like name-calling, but it's, it's biblically-based truth in this name-calling. Elymas is a son of the devil. Jesus would use this description of the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. You, you look like him, you talk like him, you lie like him, you hinder the gospel like him. Do you remember when Jesus turned to Peter, who got in Jesus' way when Jesus said, we have to go up to Jerusalem and there the Son of Man's going to die. And Peter's like, no, 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 not on my watch. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel. You don't want to be there. That's devil's work. Same thing here. The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, is trying to hear the gospel. He wants to know more about this. The magician's trying to discount everything that's being said by Saul. And Saul finally just has had enough. And in a moment, not unlike overturning the money cha changers' tables in Jesus' ministry, Paul says, enough. You are doing the devil's work in trying to hinder the gospel. And I think we know this because he even uses Old Testament language here when he says, stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. It was Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 40 who says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Paul recognizes that the good news of Jesus Christ has come and it's advancing down this highway and yet here is this Elemas trying to put a speed bump in the way and he says, don't do that. That won't stand. It was spiritual warfare. And he judges Elemas who was longing for this power of influence and control with an inability to control. 
So he's led around like a little child instead of being a key player in the court. And we don't know what comes of them, but we only know in this moment, in this spiritual warfare, Saul is ready. And he speaks Bible truth, even in denouncing what is sinful. In the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus' words, don't give to dogs what is holy, don't throw your pearls before pigs. We think, boy, how do you know when to stop speaking the good news? Well, go back to what we've already studied, the leading of the Holy Spirit in this work of gospel telling. Maybe you don't know. Next family reunion, next Thanksgiving, do do I get into it again with everybody and get everybody mad? They've heard it before. Am I supposed to keep saying it? I don't have an answer for you. The Holy Spirit will. And so you wrestle with how stern do I be? When do I say that's what the devil does? He opposes the good news. When do I say that to someone? When the Holy Spirit prompts you to. That's spiritual warfare, depending on the Holy Spirit for the strategy of the war. Finally, just note this, that our working should be characterized by gospel priority. Meaning, nothing is more important than the advance of the gospel. Everything else should serve our kingdom focus. The gospel must dictate how I live, what I'm going to do, whether I can stay or go, how much I can give to support missions if I'm a stayer and not a goer. How am I prioritizing the gospel as a goer or as a sender. And I think there's two details in our text that help us think of this gospel priority. Number one, we see it in a name change, or at least a name change usage, because the name hasn't changed. Oftentimes, maybe we think, oh, when Paul got converted, he got this new name, Paul. He was Saul before conversion. He was Paul after. No, clearly, were several chapters past his conversion, and he still saw. So why does our text tell us here in verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul, did this ministry. And then, just in the very next paragraph, verse 13, Saul's gone. And from now on, in, the gospel, or in Luke's story in Acts, you don't read of Saul, it will be Paul from this point on. This name change from Saul to Paul is instructive in the priority of the gospel. Saul is a Jewish name, and a good one. You remember the first king of Israel was Saul. So little boys growing up in Israel would have loved to have the name Saul. It was a good name. Big, tall dude he was. Good king at times, not so good at others but it still had some prestige to it. It's a good Jewish name. Paul, with a P, is the Latin or Roman form of Saul. So it really just is reflecting in what context this man is in, determining which name he will go by. And as Acts 13 is the expansion of the gospel out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria region to the ends of the earth, In other words, to the Roman world. Luke says, 
This guy named Saul is fine being Saul if he's with the Jews in Jerusalem, but if he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he's quite fine going by a Roman description of his name or a Roman usage of his name and being called Paul. So let's go with Paul, since that'll be a little easier to step into the Roman culture and share the good news. Let's go with Paul. If that works, if that makes any open door of the gospel into the Gentile world, never call me Saul again. Paul's going to share that attitude with us. He's going to say to the, the Greeks, I was like a Greek. To the Romans, I was like a Roman. We have that expression still, when, is, when in Rome, do as the Romans. We get that from the apostle who said, gospel first. Whatever else, I, my name can even change. Call me that if that's what sounds like in your culture. I don't care. I care about the name of Christ and the gospel. The second detail that we have is the switching of the names from Barnabas and Saul, which is how the text began in verse 2. The Holy Spirit says, separate Barnabas and Saul. That's how it's been in the earlier chapters. Barnabas is this key church figure. He's mentoring Saul. But now Saul has changed to Paul, making us sink gospel first. And now, from this story on, Barnabas will take a back seat to Paul. And all the other usages in the text in the book of Acts will be Paul and Barnabas for as long as they're together, rather than Barnabas and Paul. We see that again in verse 13. Barnabas isn't even mentioned. Now, Paul and his companions. What happened to Barnabas? Why isn't his name listed? Barnabas would say, why does it matter? We're about the gospel. Look what the text says. They accomplished sharing the gospel on that island. They're going somewhere else. Barnabas would tell us names don't matter. The gospel matters. And in the rest of the text of Acts 13, we see it in verse 43. After a meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. A few verses later in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Again in verse 50, the riot stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. This is the new way that it is. Paul's the leader. But it doesn't matter. The story of Barnabas is, is this constant story of the gospel first. What do I do to promote the gospel? How do I encourage this person in the gospel? How do I encourage this one to preach the gospel? Let me go get Saul to help me preach the gospel in Antioch. Build this church. The church is built. Now the Holy Spirit sends them out. And Barnabas loses his name recognition. He loses his leader of the pack designation. But he doesn't care. It's about gospel priority. So is the kingdom's advance higher than all my other concerns? All the other important things of this week need to be in the back seat compared to seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus taught us that in his Sermon on the Mount. I thought of this even as a church, as, as pastors of a, of a church. We have to be careful that we don't begrudge the success of other churches. What if they have a 1,000 people? (laughs) 
And what if some of them used to sit here? Does that eat away? Or does that encourage? Because we're about the success of the gospel. As it spreads through our city, and even as it permeates the hearts of those individuals. If that happens here, let us rejoice in the gospel. If it happens there, let us rejoice in the gospel. But let's get better at backing our names out of it and making our lives about the name that is above all names. The name that is given under heaven whereby men must be saved. And if good things happen at Grace Bible Church, let us rejoice in that. If it happens at other churches that are trying to get the gospel right, then we'll rejoice in that. We better. This is what it means to prioritize the gospel and to be workers for the gospel. We celebrate the kingdom advance, not our merit badges. So we, as individual believers and as this local church, must be learning God's word, we must be praying, we must be sending, we must be encouraging. Because even in this local body, Lord willing, some will go. Many will stay. But all of us must carry out kingdom advancing missions. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Instruct us by it. Give us great confidence, even in these stories, that your gospel is still spreading today. It still overwhelms individual hearts. It can still sweep through families. It can still permeate cities and towns and even nations. It can still capture the heart of friends in high political places. You can convert peasants and cripples and you can convert kingdom shapers. So let us believe this week when we pray for the salvation of the lost. Lord, shape our hearts by your word this morning. Make us bold in our obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.